Amen. Well, church, you can be seated. And as you sit down, turn in your Bibles to Luke chapter 23, verses 44 through 49. And church, all I can say, it's by the sovereignty of God that as we uh, begin this Advent season and we celebrate the Lord's first coming on this first week of it, we get to learn about the reason for his first coming, which is his crucifixion. And so praise God for that. Uh, Open your Bibles to Luke chapter 23, verses 44 through 49. I'm gonna read it. I want you to read it along with me. God in his providence has led us to these verses today. So let's read them together. It was now about the sixth hour, and there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour, while the sun's light fell. And the curtain of the temple was torn in two. Then Jesus, calling out with a loud voice, said, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And having said this, he breathed his last. Now, when the centurion saw what had taken place, he praised God, saying, certainly this man was innocent. And all the crowds that had assembled for this spectacle, when they saw what had taken place, returned home, beating their breasts. And all his acquaintances and the women who had followed him from Galilee stood at a distance watching these things. Church, today we're entering part four of the crucifixion narrative. And in our text today, Jesus dies. And as we go through this today, one thing that I want you to see is there's four themes that have been running throughout the crucifixion narrative, and those themes are going to continue today. The first theme is that Jesus is innocent, and that's a very important theme that we're going to focus on in just a moment. The second theme is that we see responses to Jesus. All throughout the crucifixion narrative, there's there's these responses that, that Luke draws our attention to. The third theme is that Jesus is in control. And we're gonna see that again today, even in his death, Jesus is in control. And the other theme that we're gonna see is that God is sovereign throughout this whole crucifixion. We're gonna see his sovereignty. Um, But I wanna focus on Jesus's innocence. So while you're there in Luke chapter 23, go back with me just a little bit to Luke chapter 22, verse 66. Just go back and we're gonna work our way back forward. All right, in verse 66, what we can see is he's before the council. And just remember, when we learned about this, this council, it was the Sanhedrin. They couldn't find any guilt in him, so they made up this this accusation of blasphemy, and that's what they're going to take to Pilate. But then I want you to go forward to chapter 23, verse 4. So just go forward just a little bit, and what chapter 23, verse 4 says is this, then Pilate said to the chief priests in the crowds, I find no guilt in this man. All right, so Luke makes another declaration of Christ's innocence. Well, go forward a little bit more 
to verses 14 and 15. Go look at that. Verses 14 and 15 in chapter 23. And said to them, you brought me this man as one who was misleading the people. And after examining him before you, behold, I did not find this man guilty of your charges against him. There's another declaration of Christ's innocence. All right, we'll go forward just a little bit more. Go down to verse 22. A third time, he said to them, why? What evil has he done? I have found no guilt Deserve, I have found in him no guilt deserving death. All right, we're not quite done. Go to verse 41. Verse 41, we're going to see it again. And we indeed justly, for we are receiving the due reward for our deeds. But this man has done nothing wrong. That was the criminal that was crucified with Jesus that we learned about last week. And then in today's text in verse 47... We see this. It says, now when the centurion saw what had taken place, he praised God saying, certainly this man was innocent. All right, so the spirit wants us to see through Luke's writing today, church, that Jesus's innocence is very important. All right, it's very important in what's happening at the crucifixion. Jesus is God's sinless, spotless lamb. All right, I'm going to read to you Exodus chapter 12, verses five through six. It says this, your lamb shall be without blemish, a male a year old. You may take it from the sheep or from the goats, and you shall keep it until the 14th day of this month when the whole assembly of the congregation of Israel shall kill their lambs at twilight. This is the specifications the Lord put on the selection of the Passover lamb. And what we see in our text today, church, is the Lord's Passover lamb, God's Passover lamb, is going to be slaughtered in this way. And that's what is in our text today. And that's the importance of Jesus's innocence. So as we go forward in our scripture today, we're gonna see darkness fall over the land. Then we're gonna see the death of the Lord. And then we're gonna see declarations in response to what has transpired. So I've titled today's sermon, The Crucifixion Part 4, Darkness, Death, and Declarations. And the main point we see here today, church, is that our salvation is complete through Christ's death. Last week, Pastor Chad showed us how God was sovereign in the salvation for sinners, but today, we're going to see how God makes salvation possible and available to the elect through his Christ. And this is something important for us to realize, church. We have to understand the merits of our salvation because they glorify God. Salvation can't be possible, all right, if God was to violate any of the other aspects of his attributes, okay? This is the only way that this could happen. All right, because think about this. God is just, so all sins must be punished. If he did not punish all sins, he would not be a just God. And he's holy, so all those who share his, in his presence must be righteous. So if we're gonna share in his presence, we have to be made righteous. And God himself is righteous, so he can't violate his law in any way because that would make him a hypocrite and an 
doing so, he wouldn't be God. Do you understand this, church? All right? So all this, all of this is achieved through the death of God's Christ, Jesus. And we're going to see the Lord's death presented to us in Luke today in three different parts. First, we're going to see retribution in verses 44 through 45a. We're going to see redemption in verses 45b through 46. And then we're going to see the response to all of this in verses 47 through 49. So, so verses 44 through 45a, we're going to see retribution. And this is divine retribution we're going to see. The redemption that we have through Christ in verses 45b through 46. And then the response to all this. We're going to see some responses. This is something Luke's done all throughout uh, this crucifixion narrative in verses 47 through 49. In church, we can't at all take this lightly, what we're seeing in these verses today. Um, this, this moment in our verses today, this is the pinnacle. This is, this is the, the summit of the gospel according to Luke. It's, it's the pinnacle of human history and of redemptive history. Church, this is everything that God's word is about. It's happening right here in these verses today. Everything in God's word either points toward this moment as it does in the Old Testament or as we see in the rest of the New Testament points back to this moment. All right, this, this is it. This is everything that was planned before time began. It happens right here today in these verses. So let's take a look at retribution in verses 44 through 45a. And again, this is divine retribution. What we're going to see in these verses that I'm about to read is God is going to punish sin right here in these verses. So let, let's read them. Verses 44 through 45a. It was now about the sixth hour and there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour while the sun's light failed. So the first part of this verse is just making clear the time for us. All right, the darkness starts and ends uh, according to the time that's laid forth for us in verse 44. Now the Jews divided daylight into 12 equal parts and those 12 equal parts varied in length uh, according to the season of the year. So obviously in a time like now, winter when daylight's real short, you know, those 12 equal parts might be less than an hour, okay? But one thing is always true about the time that they use. Noon, or what we know as 12 p.m., is the sixth hour. So what we see here in our verses is that this darkness starts right about the sixth hour, and it's going to last until the ninth hour, which would be 3 p.m. All right, so this darkness begins at midday at high noon, and it's going to go till 3 p.m. The next thing that we see is that this darkness is over the whole land. It's over the entire land. Now, the extent of it, we do not know. We can't confirm from Scripture. Uh, it could be just Jerusalem. It could be all of Israel. It could be all of Judea. It could be the entire world. But uh, we can say with confidence that it's at least just over Jerusalem. And why is there darkness over Jerusalem? Well, Verse 45a answers that for us. It's because the sun's light failed. 
Now, the Greek word here used for failed means obscured. In other words, it means it was concealed or kept from being seen. Now, we got to be clear about this, church. This is pitch black darkness. There's no vision at all right now. You cannot see your hand in front of your face. And this is happening at high noon. And there's a lot of explanations that go along with this. Some people say it's a solar eclipse. Well, it can't be a solar eclipse because we know from scripture that right now the moon is full. All right, it's Passover, the moon's full. Some people say clouds. Well, clouds are not going to bring this degree of darkness to the land. It's something else. But this darkness is so thick that no one can see anything. And this darkness causes a drastic change in the scenery here at the crucifixion, all right? No one can see. They don't have lamps with them or torches. This is midday. They're going out to see this crucifixion. They're not expecting pitch black darkness to happen. So there's no lamps or torches or anything out there right now. But all of a sudden, all of this mockery and all of this jeering and all of these awful things that are being said to the Lord, they're coming to a halt and they're being replaced with fear, okay? So they're in the middle of, of, of making fun of the Lord in whatever way, uh, jeering him, mocking him. Uh, Pastor Sam, Pastor Chad have both, both been preaching about this over the last three weeks. Now it's all gonna come to a halt and everybody there is gonna be fearful about what's going on and rightly so. Everyone's stuck in place. They can't see anything. They, they can't, you know, just somehow find their way back to Jerusalem and find their way back to their homes. They're out in the middle, uh, maybe next to a road, a uh, quarter to a half mile outside the city. Uh, there, there's no going anywhere right now. They can't see anything. They're stuck in place. And it's right here that we see the father make his entrance into Luke's narrative. Luke has progressed the narrative of, of the crucifixion through uh, those present at the crucifixion. We, we've seen, we've taken a look at a lot of different people and their reactions to what's going on at the cross. Well, right here, we see the Father make his entrance. The crucifixion church is God's moment. It was made for his glory. This is the opposite of what we see in Genesis chapter one, verse three. In Genesis chapter one, verse three, God makes light in total darkness. Well, right here in our verses, in verses 45 through 45a, God is making total darkness out of abundant light. And this is gonna last approximately three hours. And church, we gotta be careful here about the symbols that we associate through our culture about what darkness is, because our culture would have to say, well, this darkness represents some kind of other presence, but it's not. This is the presence of God that we see right here. And so the question comes up, well, why is the father appearing in darkness right here at the crucifixion? Well, when God appears in darkness throughout scripture, it's often associated with his judgment. Genesis chapter 15, verses 12 through 14 says, as the sun was going down, a deep sleep fell on Abram 
And behold, dreadful and great darkness fell upon him. Then the Lord said to Abram, know for certain that your offspring will be sojourners in the land that is not theirs and will be servants there. And they will be afflicted for 400 years. But I will bring judgment on the nation that they serve. And afterwards, they shall come out with great possessions. So God here talking to Abram, better known as Abraham, talking about judgment that he's bringing both on Israel and then eventually on Egypt. But he's appearing in darkness. Do you see that? Well, what about Exodus chapter 10, verses 21 through 23? It says, Then the Lord said to Moses, Stretch out your hand toward heaven, that there may be darkness over the land of Egypt, a darkness to be felt. So Moses stretched out his hand toward heaven, and there was pitch black, there was pitch darkness in all the land of Egypt three days. They did not see one another, nor did they rise from his place for three days. But all the people of Israel had light where they lived. And I want you to notice verse 23 where it says, nor did anyone rise from his place. That means they didn't move. They were stuck where they were for three days because they could not see anything. And I've got a few more of these. Let's keep going. Now I'm going to go to Joel chapter 2, verses 1 and 2. Blow a trumpet in Zion. Sound an alarm on my holy mountain. Let all the inhabitants of the land tremble, for the day of the Lord is coming. It is near, a day of darkness and gloom, a day of clouds and thick darkness. Like blackness, there is spread upon the mountains a great and powerful people. There, like has never been before, nor will be again after them through the years of all generations. Darkness, the Lord. Joel 2, still in Joel chapter 2, verses 10 and 11. The earth quakes before them, the heavens tremble, the sun and moon are darkened, and the stars withdraw their shining. The Lord utters his voice before his army, for his camp is exceedingly great. He who execute his word, his word is powerful, for the day of the Lord is great and very awesome. Who can endure it? So, I've got more, but I want you to see this, church. Do you see it? The Lord comes in judgment and darkness comes with him. Joel chapter 2, verses 30 through 32. And I will show wonders in the heavens and on the earth, blood and fire and columns of smoke. The sun shall be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. And it shall come to pass that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. For in Mount Zion and in Jerusalem, there shall be those who escape as the Lord has said. And among survivors shall be those whom the Lord calls. Zephaniah chapter one, verses 14 and 15. The great day of the Lord is near and hastening fast. The sound of the day of the Lord is bitter. Um, the mighty man cries aloud there. A day of wrath is that day, a day of distress and anguish, a day of ruin and devastation, a day of darkness and gloom, a day of clouds and thick darkness. It's talking about the day of the Lord, the day that we see described in Revelation even in Revelation chapter 6, verses 12 through 16, we see, we see, when he opened up the sixth seal, I looked and behold, 
there was a great earthquake and the sun became black as sackcloth and the full moon became like blood and the stars of the sky fell to the earth as the fig tree sheds its winter fruit when shaken by a gale. The sky vanished like a scroll that is being rolled up and every mountain and island was removed from its place. Then the kings of the earth and the great ones and the generals and the rich and the powerful and everyone, slave and free, hid themselves from the ca uh, in the caves and among the rocks and the mountains, calling to the mountains and the rocks, fall on us, hide us from the face of him who is seated on the throne and from the wrath of the lamb. Church, this day that's being described by the Lord coming in judgment and darkness, it's terrible. It's horrible. I mean, we've seen people so far in these verses. We've seen the mighty man crying. We've seen people begging mountains and rocks to fall on them so they don't have to endure this. This is a terrible thing when the Lord comes in judgment and in darkness. I've got one more for you. Amos chapter five, verses 20 through 24. Is not the day of the Lord darkness and not light and gloom with no brightness in it? I hate, I despise your feasts and I take no delight in your solemn assemblies. Even though you offer me your burnt offerings and grain offerings, I will not accept them. And the peace offerings of your fattened animals, I will not look upon them. Take away from me the noise of your songs to the melody of your harps, I will not listen. But let justice roll down like waters and righteousness like an ever-flowing stream. So the point I'm making here, church, is that in this scripture right here, retribution is coming in the darkness. The Father is going to pour out his wrath on the Son right here in these verses. Church, do you, do you realize what's going on here? Jesus has just been crucified. He's hanging on the cross for you and for me for sins he did not commit. He's nailed there. He's hanging there off this tree in the complete and utter pitch black darkness. And right here as he's doing this, God is coming down and he is about to pour out all the wrath and the hatred and the malice that he has for sin on his son on the cross. It's for you, it's for me, for the forgiveness of sins and it's the only way that it's possible to forgive sins. This is it. And we often dwell on the physical pain of the cross, which the pain of the cross is excruciating. As a matter of fact, the word excruciating comes from the word crucifixion. The other thing we often focus on is what the cross accomplished. And praise God, we're gonna to get to that in just a minute. But we've gotta confront the reality of what this darkness is right here in our scripture today. Church, the penalty for sin is hell. And what is hell? It's the full measure of God's wrath. It's the absence of God's comfort. 
I already told you that God is just and he's got to punish sin. Because if he even let one sin go, he would no longer be just. And so we see that right here today. Jesus is our substitute. The father punishes our sin through the son. And we got to be clear about this, church. Crucifixion isn't the penalty for sin, okay? That's a punishment made by man. That's not how God punishes sin. He punishes sin with his wrath. And this is the reality of our salvation. We are saved from God, by God, for God. And this is the cup that Jesus prayed would pass from him in Gethsemane. Luke chapter 22 Verses 41 and 42, uh, 42 says this, and he withdrew from them about a stone's throw away and knelt down and prayed, saying, Father, if you are willing, remove this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. Church, you, you can't even imagine how terrible this is. And, God, and Jesus, the Christ, was willing to do this for you and for me. I mean, this is terrible. Um, I want you to, I'm going to turn, you don't have to turn there, but I'm going to read Romans chapter five, verse nine. It says, therefore, since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. Church, Another way that Jesus describes hell, describes God's wrath, Matthew chapter 11, verse 24, but I tell you that it will be more tolerable on that day of judgment for the land of Sodom than for you, speaking of those who reject his word. You remember what happened to Sodom and Gomorrah? It was total devastation. It was total destruction. God rained down on both of those cities. Not a man, woman, or child was left alive. That is more tolerable than what's going on in this darkness right now, church. God is literally bringing hell on earth. The Father is doing this to the Son right here in this darkness. And as we... Um, move on. I want y'all to turn with me to chapter 53 of Isaiah, Isaiah chapter 53. And I want to take a look at verses four through 10. Turn with me right there. Isaiah chapter 53 verses four through 10. Starting in verse four, it says, Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteem him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray and, have tur and we have turned every one to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. 
like a lamb that is led to the slaughter, like a sheep that is before its shears is silent. So he opened not his mouth. By oppression and judgment, he was taken away. And as for his generation who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living, stricken for the transgression of my people. And they made his grave with the, with the wicked and with a rich man in his death, although he had done no violence and there was no deceit in his mouth. Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He, was, he has put him to grief. When his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. Church, this is the will of God. This is the will of God that the father would pour out his wrath on the son for you and for I and for me. But there was a reason for all of that and we're gonna see it in the next part in redemption, verses 45b through 46. So what we've just seen is divine retribution poured out on the son by the father in the darkness And we're going to see the results of that in verses 45b through 46, back in Luke chapter 23. Turn back there if you haven't already, and let's read verses 45b through uh, 46. And it says, and the curtain of the temple was torn in two. Then Jesus calling out with a loud voice said, Father, into your hands, I commit my spirit. And having said that, he breathed his last. One thing that we can see here in verses 45a, uh, from 45a and from 47 is that the darkness is now gone. So what's happening in 45b through 46 um, is that this is all being seen again. So the darkness is gone. God, God has poured out his wrath. All right. And now everyone can see again. Uh, and we see that the curtain of the temple was torn in two. Now, Chronologically, this actually happens after Christ dies. Uh, The reason why Luke is introducing it before um, Christ dies is because he's introducing it um, kind of thematically. He's showing you that the darkness was an act of God. Well, now he's saying this tearing of the curtain is also an act of God. He wants you to realize that. So he's bringing up those two together. Now, if you go and look at this in Matthew and Mark, you'll see that they bring it up when it actually happens, uh, which is after uh, Christ dies. But the earthquake is not mentioned by Luke. He does not mention that one. Um, There were three acts of God that day. The, uh, The tearing of the curtain, which we're talking about right now, the darkness and the earthquake, and Luke does not mention the earthquake. So talking about the curtain, or some of your um, translations might call it the veil of the temple, this separates the rest of the temple from the holies, holy of holies. This is where the pe- presence of God dwelled in the temple. And the high priest entered this area once per year after some special cleansing um, rituals and then uh, wearing special garments, okay? He would enter this place once a year in what the Jews called Yom Kippur. But this curtain is massive, It's 20 cubits by 20 cubits, okay? And I know y'all don't use cubits, so we'll call it 30 feet by 30 feet. All right, this is a massive, massive curtain. Now this curtain, what it represents is more important. This curtain represents the barrier 
or the chasm that's placed between man and God. And we're going to see that in Genesis chapter 3, verses 21 through 24. Should be up on the screen for you. It says this, And the Lord made for Adam and his wife garments of skins and clothed them. Then the Lord God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us, knowing good and evil. Now, lest he reach out and his, uh, his hand and take also of the tree of life and eat and live forever. Therefore, the Lord God sent him out from the garden of Eden to work the ground from which he, uh, he, he was taken. He drove out the man and the rest of the garden of Eden and placed the cherubim of, and a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. So what's happening there in Genesis chapter three, verses 21 through 24 is happening directly after Adam and Eve sinned against God. This is a result of sin. God is putting up the do not enter sign, so to speak. The way to God has been shut. Man cannot cross the chasm between him and God with his good works, church. Do you understand that? Man cannot make his way back to God on his own. There's no amount of good works that can do it. There's no way that we can approach God's throne on our own merits. It cannot be done. Through Christ, and only through Christ, can we now draw near to God. And that's what um, verse 45b is about. So I want you to turn with me to Hebrews chapter 9. And we're going to look at verses 6 through 22. Hebrews chapter 9, and we're going to look at verses 6 through 22, and this is going to explain for us what Christ has done for us through his death. Verses, Hebrews chapter 9, verses 6 through 22 says this. These preparations, having thus been made by priests, go regularly into the first section performing their ritual duties. But in the second, only the high priest goes, and he but once a year, and without taking blood, which he offers for himself and for the unintentional sins of the people. By this, the Holy Spirit indicates that the way into the holy places is not yet open, as long as the first section is still standing, which is symbolic for the present age. According to this arrangement, gifts and sacrifices are offered that cannot perfect the conscience of the worship worshiper, but deal only with food and drink and the various washings, regulations for the body imposed until the time of reformation. But when Christ appeared as a high priest for the good things that have come, then through the greater and more perfect tent, not made with hands, that is not of this creation, he entered once and for all into the holy places, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. For if the blood of goats and bulls and the sprinkling of defiled persons with the ashes of a heifer sanctify for the purification of, of the flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God. Therefore, he is the mediator of a new covenant 
so that those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance, since a death has occurred that redeems them from the transgressions committed under the first covenant. For where a will is involved, the death of the one who made it must be established. For a will takes effect only at death, since it is not in force as long as the one who made it is alive. Therefore, not even with the first co- not even the first covenant was inaugurated without blood. For when every commandment of the law has been declared by Moses to all the people, he took the blood of calves and goats with water and scarlet wool and hyssop and sprinkled both the book itself and all the people saying, this is the blood of the covenant that God has commanded for you. And in the same way, he sprinkled with blood both the tent and all the vessels of the worship. Indeed, under the law, almost everything is purified with blood and without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. Church, in Christ's blood, the new covenant has been ratified. Church, Jesus has done it for us. Praise God. He secured an eternal redemption for his elect church. Do you see that? That's what these, this set of verses is right here. The way to God is open now. That's why the curtain's been torn in two. God did that. It's a sign to us. Our eternal redemption through Christ, it's been done. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21 says, For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. I want you to focus on that for a second. He, God, the Father, made him, Christ, to be sin who knew no sin, that we might become the righteousness of God. This is the sovereignty of God right here, church. Christ's work on the cross can best be described as penal substitutionary atonement. It's penal because the price that was paid for sin is a penalty. It was the penalty that was meant for us, but was put on Christ. It's substitutionary because Christ suffered in our place. And it's atonement because it satisfies the wrath of God. In church, from the moment that Adam sinned, this is what man has so desperately needed. We can't save ourselves. It's not possible. Our good works are not enough, church. But all this was achieved when Christ died. And we'll see that in verse 46 of Luke chapter 23. Verse 46 says, Then Jesus, calling out with a loud voice, said, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And having said that, he breathed his last. And this is the very moment that the Lord dies. And it says that he called out with a loud voice. Now, this is an interesting uh, piece of the verse Church, I want us to focus in on it for a second because we've got to remember crucifixion's effect on the human body here, okay? When you're nailed to a cross, I don't know this from experience, uh, but science says this. When you're nailed 
to a cross, the pressure of your body weight goes on to your diaphragm, which is the muscle that helps your lungs do the act of breathing. Okay, so in order to relieve this pressure off of your lungs, you actually have to stand yourself up on the nails that are going through your feet to relieve that pressure so you can breathe. It's way more excruciating than I just made it sound. Okay, it's horrible. All right. So at this point, the Lord has been on the cross for six hours. All right. You know, the, this, is, this is all weighing in on him. Okay. He's, he's been up there for six hours. He's tired. All right. You know, it's getting harder and harder to breathe as time goes on. But it says that he cried out with a loud voice. Now, the act of crucifixion is the slow act of suffocating, among other things, church. So the fact that he's crying out with a loud voice right here says that Christ's death, this is what it tells us, that Christ's death right, that's about to happen right here is an act of his sovereign will. He's not succumbing to his injuries. He's deliberately yielding up his spirit. John chapter 10, verses 17 through 18 says, for this reason, the father loves me because I lay down my life that I may take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down on my own accord. I have authority to lay it down. I have authority to take it up again. This charge I have received from my father tells us that he's both willing to do this for us and in control of it. And now we come to Christ's last words. He says, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. Now, that comes from Psalm 31, 5. Uh, I'll read that to you. It says, into your hand I commit my spirit. You have redeemed me, O Lord, faithful God. Now, the significance of this is that in the time of Jesus, this psalm had become a prayer for the Jews. They would say this as a nighttime prayer right before they went to bed. They, they would pray this. So Jesus's final words, not counting the resurrection, is, is to pray to God. That's what he's using, the final words. Now, in church, how beautiful is that, that he's just endured the wrath of the Father on the cross. And as he yields up his spirit to the Father, he prays to him. It's just so beautiful. And one thing I want to take a moment to do is clarify for you the actual last words of Jesus. Um, depending on what um, gospel you're reading, some of the gospels end, end with different things that the Lord said. So um, I thought it would be helpful if I put on a slide for you the order in which he said all those things. Do we have that on the slide there? Yeah, there we go. All right, so this is the actual order of everything that the Lord said while he was on the cross. Uh, first, we have a plea for forgiveness in Luke chapter 23, verse 34. That's where we see it. Father, forgive them for they know, they know not what they do. The next thing that he said comes from Luke chapter 23, verse 43. This is where he forgives a criminal. Pastor Chad preached on this last week. It says, truly I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. Third, he makes a provision for his mother. 
He says, woman, behold your son. He says, he says that to Mary, his mother, and it says, behold your mother to the apostle John. Uh, this is where he's charging John to take care of his mother. Um, next, we see a petition to the father. It's Matthew 27, verse 46. And what he's quoting here, he says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? What he's quoting here is Psalm chapter 22, verse one. Um, and this is how we know that part of what God's judgment is, what hell is, is the absence of God's comfort. The next is a plea for relief. John chapter 19, verse 28, uh, the Lord said, I thirst. All right. And if you pay attention to the, to the narrative uh, that all the gospels tell, Christ has been rejecting drinks up until this moment. But now that his work is done, he's thirsty. He acknowledges that and he asks for a drink. Next in John chapter 19, verse 30, we see the proclamation of victory. Okay, it is finished. It has been done. And what we see in our verses today, Luke chapter 23, verse 46, the prayer of consummation, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. So what we see here in Luke are the actual last words of Christ before he yields up his spirit. And that's what Luke recorded. But the important thing here, church, is that Christ's death secures eternal redemption and righteousness for the elect. Romans chapter three, verses 21 through 25 said, but now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. The righteousness of God uh, through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe, for there is no distinction, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance, he had passed over former sins. A couple of things I want you to see. Verse 24, justified by grace through redemption in Christ Jesus. But look at verse 25 for whom God put forward to show God's righteousness. And this all happened right here in this moment. And praise and glory be to him that was able to overcome sin and death, church. And because he has done it through him, if we belong to him, we will also. And that leads me to our next section, which is the response. We're gonna see those in verses 47 through 49, the response. Luke chapter 23, verses 47 through 49. So we've just seen the redemption that was secured through Christ's death, and now we're gonna see some responses to it. Verses 47 through 49 say, now when the centurion saw what had taken place, he praised God saying, certainly this man was innocent. And all the crowds that had assembled for this spectacle, when they saw what had taken place, returned home beating their breasts. And all his acquaintances and the women who had followed him from Galilee stood at a distance watching these things. So Luke continues to bring our attention 
to the responses of those who were present at the crucifixion. So let's, uh, let's take a look at these responses. We'll take them one verse at a time, starting with verse 47. Verse 47, now when the centurion saw what had taken place, he praised God saying, certainly this man was innocent. So this is the first response we see, which is conversion. This centurion is converted. Now, a centurion is an officer in the Roman army, and he is the commander over what's known as a century. And so he's the commander of how many people's in a century? 80, right? It's 80. I know, I was surprised too, um, but it's 80. Um, so he's a commander of up to 80 men, and these soldiers have been with Christ throughout the whole morning, okay? They were present at his arrest. They were present all through the um, fake trial with the Sanhedrin. They were present all the way through Pilate and Herod and back to Pilate and all the way from Pilate to the cross. They've been here the entire time, okay? But this man declares that Jesus is innocent. And that's after he praises God. Church, this is a Roman soldier, okay? I want you to really think about what's going on here. A Roman soldier all of a sudden starts praising God and declaring that Christ is innocent. Church, this is how we know that belief is a gift from God, that faith comes from God. How would this man have all of a sudden known how to praise God? for what's going on here. He's just witnessed what amounts to a brutal murder. But yet he's going to praise God right now and declare that Jesus is innocent. This is conversion, church. He, he has just received the gift of faith from God. This is one of the first converts to Christianity, and it's happening right here just moments after Jesus has died. I mean, this is just right after it happened. And here's some even better news, church. Not only him, but the soldiers that are with him. All right, we, we can see in Matthew chapter 27, verse 54, when the centurion and those who were with him, keeping watch over Jesus, saw the earthquake and what, it take, what took place, they were filled with awe and said, truly, this was the son of God. Praise God, church, that this happened right here, right after our Lord was crucified. These are some of the first converts to Christ, and it's just moments after his death. And then we move to verse 48, and we're going to see the crowds in verse 48. Verse 48 says, and all the crowds that had assembled for this spectacle, when they saw what had taken place, returned home, beating their breasts. And here we see the second response, which is conviction. Now, the crowds here are representative of the people of Jerusalem. Many would have been cheering for the Lord during his triumphal entry. Hosanna, Hosanna in the highest. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. They were all cheering for him when he was entering Jerusalem just a few days earlier. Earlier, in the morning of the day that we're in in our text right now, they're calling for his crucifixion. They even chose a murderer over the Lord. And to top all that off, they mocked him while he was on the cross. We've seen that 
But they're here for the spectacle. That's what it is, all right? We see the spectacle in verse 48, referring to the crucifixion. Now, Romans tended to make a spectacle out of crucifixions. They wouldn't do the crucifixions in the town where they were taking place, but they would bring them right outside that town or village or whatever, and they would do them right next to a road that was busy so all of the passers-by, all of the people, as many people as possible, would see this as they walked by. It was to send a message to anyone who would revolt against Rome. So they're making a spectacle out of it. This is entertainment, church. As sick as that sounds for a lot of these mockers that are out here, this is entertainment. They're mocking men as they die in a very excruciating way. Now, the beating of the breasts, though, it's a sign of remorse and, for ang- and of anguish. Uh, the last time that we saw that would have been in Luke 18, chapter, uh, chapter 18, verse 13, Uh, But the tax collector standing far off would not even lift up his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast saying, God be merciful to me, a sinner. See, it's a sign of remorse, sign of anguish, sign of regret. This isn't conversion, okay? This isn't conversion, but there is some humbling going on in the hearts of these people. Their hearts are softening. All right, and many of these that are in this crowd right now that are beating their breasts as they walk away, they're gonna be some of the first converts on the day of Pentecost. Acts chapter two, verse 41 and 47. So those who received his word were baptized and they were added to that day about 3,000 souls. Jump down to verse 47. Praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. So they're not being converted right here, but there's a softening of the heart going on. They're convicted about what they've done, what they've said, their actions, and what they've seen happening on the cross. So when Pentecost comes on that day, this image And the way they feel right now is going to be seared into their hearts and into their minds. And that's going to be that that seed that was planted. God's going to provide that growth. Now, I'm not saying that's happening to all of them, but certainly some of them would have seen this. And we can tell that by the sermon that Peter gives on the day of Pentecost. Which leads us to verse 49. And all his acquaintances... And the women who had followed him from Galilee stood at a distance watching these things. Now, we want to lock on to these were acquaintances and women. Luke does not specify who these people are. But if you take a look at some of the other gospels, you can see that Mary Magdalene was present. Mary, the wife of Clopas, Clopas and the mother of James and Joseph was present. Mary the Lord's mother was present. And Salome, the mother of James and John, was present. And also we know that John the Apostle was present. Now the word acquaintances would also indicate there was more than just these that were present. Um, But those are the ones that are mentioned in the gospel. So those are the ones that, the only ones that we can say for sure were there. 
Now, what's the response in verse 49? Well, we don't see one. Um, certainly, our own feelings of empathy will lead us to reason that these people would be full of sorrow or confusion or shock because they all know who Jesus is. And so they're just probably in utter disbelief about how this story is coming to an end. They, they, they just can't believe what's happening in front of their eyes. But there's nothing in scripture that indicates their response. So we can't say for sure what their response is. But we can see God's sovereignty in verse 49. I mean, these women, they're gonna be the witnesses to the place that Jesus is buried. And they're also gonna be the first that the Lord appears to on Sunday after his resurrection. And praise God for that. A church, as we close today, I mean, I, I want you to see this. The cross was God's plan. And it was a plan that was laid before the foundation of the world. First Peter chapter 18, uh, sorry, chapter one, verses 18 through 21 says, knowing that you were ransomed from the futile ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. He was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was made manifest in the last times for the sake of you, who through him are believers in God, who raised him from the dead, gave him glory so that your faith and hope are in God. So this plan, God's plan, God promised it, God initiated it, and God executed it. And so, church, this message that you've heard this morning, it requires a response, church, just like we saw throughout the crucifixion narrative, all the responses that we've been through. What you've seen today requires a response. If you belong to Christ, well, we can see your response in 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 13 through 16. It says, therefore, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance, but as he who, is call, but as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conducts. Since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. And if you belong to Christ, your, your heart should be full of joy that this was done, that you do not have to face the wrath of God. Now, if you don't know Christ, I wanna read for you something from Hebrews chapter two, verses one through four. Therefore, we must pay closer, closer attention to what we have heard, lest we drift away from it. For since the message declared by angels proved to be reliable, and every transgression or disobedience received a just retribution, how shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? It was declared at first by the Lord, and it was attested to us by those who heard. 
while God also bore witness, witness by signs and wonders and various miracles and gifts of the Holy Spirit distributed according to his will. So I want to encourage you, don't, don't put this off. Don't walk away from this message and say, I'll get to it later. You need to listen to what we've seen today through the Lord's word. Repent, turn from your sins. Either your sins are punished through Christ or they're gonna be punished through you. There, there's, no, there's no other way around this. Either Christ has taken, your sin, taken on the penalty for your sins or you will. Believe in Christ and what he has done on our behalf. Let us pray. Father, Lord, we, we thank you so much for your word, Lord. We thank you for the truth that is revealed in, in it, Lord. And we thank you, Father, that you sent your Christ to die for us, Lord, that through him we could obtain the righteousness that we need, that we could have you, Lord, for all eternity. And let that be what's in our hearts, Lord, that above all things, we want you, not anything else, but just you, Lord. And we thank you, Father, that you made it possible that that could be the desires of our hearts. Through your Christ, and it's in his name, in Jesus' name we pray, amen.